On NPR's Consider This podcast, we don't just help you keep up with the news, we help you make sense of what's happening. Like what the case about George Floyd's killing means for the ongoing fight for racial justice, or how to best navigate a pandemic that's changed life for all of us. All of that in 15 minutes every weekday. Listen now to Consider This from NPR. From NPR Music, this is Alt Latino. I'm Felix Contreras. You know, throughout history, music from the various Latin American cultures has been an oral tradition passed on from master to student. And while technology has made that process a little easier, and some of the music is actually taught in universities and conservatories, even those circumstances involve someone with knowledge passing it on to eager and enthusiastic students. The history and social context of these traditions have also been in the hands of teachers, usually storytellers who may not actually play music, but can provide historical and social context. And this week's show features interviews with two such teacher-slash-storytellers. Leila Cobo is vice president and Latin industry lead for Billboard magazine, the leading music industry periodical, which is required reading for just about anyone and everyone connected to the business of making music. Her new book is called Decoding Despacito, an oral history of Latin music, in which she tells that history through the stories of 19 songs that had a major impact, musically or socially, on the music scene here in the U.S. We also talked to radio reporter Beto Arcos, whose book is called Music Stories from the Cosmic Barrio, a collection of some of his vast reportings on Latin music of a more folkloric nature for NPR and other public media outlets. So, first up, my conversation with Leila Cobo. Leila Cobo, welcome back to Alt Latino. Thank you, Felix. Always great to be in Alt Latino contigo. <laughs> <laughs> Your book Decoding Despacito, an oral history of Latin music, starts in a way that surprised me, but it makes sense ultimately. You talk about a crossover artist uh, and the efforts to reach out to an audience that's beyond the Latin music, and you paint this picture, and then we find out it's Perez Prado from the 1950s. It drives home the point of just how long this stuff has been going on, these ideas of trying to cross over or at least introducing Latin music to the general audience, to the wider audience, to the American audience. Why did you start there? Why did you start with Perez Prado, of all people? Because when we were deciding what songs to put in the book, Perez Prado's songs came up because um, his songs were number one hits on the Billboard charts when that chart first was created all those years ago in the 1950s. The, the specific, the chart that today is the Hot 100. I think it was called Popular Hits at the time or something like that. The Perez Prado songs, specifically Cherry Pink and Apple Blossom White, were a topic of discussion to include in the book because that song in particular was number one on the Billboard charts when it was launched all those years ago in the 50s, the original singles chart. But then I started thinking, no, that's going too way back. The people are dead. They can't talk to it. Um... So, but I did love the story. Uh, the fact that the music of Perez Prado and of many others, many other Latin composers was being heard by American audiences all the way back to the 50s, to the 40s. 
And uh, that to me was really important because I have always said since I first started writing about Latin music that it's part of the cultural fabric of this country and it has always bothered me when it's not recognized as such. And Perez Prado is the great example. Everybody was dancing to Perez Prado, you know? And that story of how he was a hit in Latin America and then they said, he's such a hit, let's work him in the United States. I didn't know that. It was a great story and it was a great starter to these inside stories of how these hits were born. While you were writing this book, did you learn anything new? Because you're going over stories that are going back to the 1960s and up till the most very recent right now. What did you learn? What did you learn about the music? The book is ostensibly a history of Latin music, but it's told as the oral history of 19 songs. And it starts with Feliz Navidad from 1970. It ends with Malamente by Rosalia in 2018. And each song that was selected was selected because it opened a door for Latin music that was not open before, like a major door. I missed some songs. <laughs> you know, I wish I, I had included more songs. So there are some that didn't make it for a variety of reasons. But the ones that, that are there, each one is very significant for one reason or another. And I went back and I interviewed the artists, the songwriters, the producers, in some cases, the video directors, in some cases, executives. And they told the story of the making of the song. And each story is, is a world and it's fascinating. And, and I think each of them is delightful in their way. You know, I, I uh, spoke with Julio Iglesias his song is To All the Girls I've Loved Before, which is a song in English. Uh, but he, he says in, during the interview, the biggest story about the song is I spoke no English at all when I recorded it. Like he didn't. And he goes to meet Willie Nelson. He didn't know who Willie Nelson was. Nor did Willie Nelson knew who Julio Iglesias was the first time he heard him sing. So it's like this coming of two very different worlds. And, and it's beautiful. And then you speak with people like uh, Mark Anthony of how the day they did the video for Vivir Mi Vida and he went back to his neighborhood in the Bronx and there had been a shooting and they had closed off the neighborhood. I think each story is really fascinating in its own way. And Omar Alfano talking about how he wrote El Gran Barón, which is sung by Willy Colon. And it's mm -hmm. a story about a gay boy who goes to San Francisco and comes out and then he ends up dying of AIDS. And really, it was a very ballsy song. You know, it was done in the 1990s. Nobody was talking about AIDS and certainly no one in the Latin community was talking about AIDS. And this song became a hit throughout Latin America. So that's why that song is there. Each song has its significance and it's they're poignant. And I think they're beautiful stories. I love telling them. They are wonderful stories. I mean, the, the whole, the El Gran Barón story was very, very touching. You know, the, the Willie Nelson and Julio Iglesias story was, was pretty funny when Julio got, he got high with Willie Nelson. You yes. Know? It's like, it's the book, there are funny stories, but they, like you say, they get behind the story of the song that you may not pay attention to. I mean, I think that I really admire the fact that you that you used the song as one of the moments where that cross-cultural thing happens. 
Yeah, I think it'll exactly what you're saying for people to read this and say, oh, my God, really? These two collaborated? Like, how is that even possible? They did. And uh, and I think one of the really beautiful things about the the stories in this in this book is that everybody was willing to collaborate with everybody. Like there was absolutely no barrier of entry in these songs. They're such a mishmash. You know, Gloria Stefan talks about conga and how they performed a conga line in Holland, mm -hmm. in a nightclub in Holland, and people went nuts. And so they got on the plane and they're like, oh my God, we should write a song about this. And, and they write the song on the, in the little tray in the last row of the plane. And then they record the song in English because it was too percussive to do in Spanish, but everything, they have all the trumpets, they sample James Brown. And then the label says, oh, no one's going to want to hear, like radio's not going to play that. That's like, that's too Latin for radio, but then radio plays it. So all these songs are in a way about breaking little barriers of entry and, and creating something beautiful as a result. The title of the book is Decoding Despacito. So let's talk about that song because that, even for Alt Latino, that was a, a pivotal point for us. That was a marker where we had to spend some time uh, looking at that song and its social as well as musical impact. So talk about why you included the song as the pivot point in your book and made it the title of your book. The Despacito was the song that sparked the book because that song really opened, like finished opening the floodgates of Latin music to the world or of the world to Latin music rather. Um, it had been building And that's how I tell the story in the book. It really had been building, but then Despacito came out. It was such a massive global hit, and it really laid bare the possibilities of Latin music. If people were consuming this song, even before Justin Bieber jumped on it, in such a massive way, it showed that there was like, oh my God, there is an audience there that wants this kind of music. And it's a great song, Felix. You know, I, I have to say, I never, obviously, I never thought it was going to be such a big song when it came out. But it was a, it was a great song. And then once you dissect it, it's, it's fantastic. And, and Luis talks about how he really wanted a cuatro player to play in that song. And so he got this guy called Cristian Fernandez in Puerto Rico. So it opens up with this very quintessential Puerto Rican instrument, and then it goes into that reggaeton beat. And uh, so you have Luis Fonsi, who is a Puerto Rican guy, raised in Orlando with a very R&B sensibility. He's a pop singer that's very soulful, sings in Spanish. He recruits Daddy Yankee, who's a hardcore reggaetonero, to do like a rap part. And then he works with these two producers from Colombia, who give it like that reggaeton beat. And then Justin Bieber hears the song in a disco in Colombia because that's exactly how it happened. And he's like, oh, this song is really cool. Like, what do we do something with this song? And while he's in Bogota, he goes into the recording studio and records his part. So in like three days, he heard it, recorded it, and it got released. So the whole story is, is really Kind of amazing. I, I don't think there's another story like it. Yeah, it's the kind of thing that if you saw a movie about the making of a hit and they did that, 
you would be sitting there thinking, oh my God, these guys know nothing. Like this would never happen. And then that's exactly how it happened. For a lot of these artists that you write about in the book, especially these days with when the YouTube views and, and streams are in the millions with some of these artists, it's like they're hiding in plain sight. They're popular in, in, in our communities. Even now in 2021, you know, what, 70 years after you write about in, in Pérez Prado in the 1950s, they're still not known to the, to the broader audience here in the United States. So little has changed, but the numbers are so much bigger in a way. Yes, and the bigger numbers, the numbers have forced people to acknowledge. That doesn't mean that they weren't always there. Now they're there in bigger numbers, but those numbers, the streaming numbers, YouTube, Spotify, uh, Apple Music, Deezer, all those services have been crucial in opening people's eyes to the importance of this music. I mean, to the sheer volume of this music. The other day, somebody posted something on my Instagram and the hashtag was against invisibility. And I love that. And I thought, yes, you know, it's it's been very frustrating to for years tell people, oh, but these artists are filling arenas like we're playing, you know, we're selling 150,000 tickets a year in the United States alone. We're selling 200,000 tickets and, and people pretending that it's not happening. And now it's like they're in front of their faces and I don't think they can pretend anymore. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to be familiar with all Latin music, not at all. I like no one has to be familiar with all of anything uh, that goes without saying, but let's not pretend that it's not there. You know, it's there and some of it is not great. You know, some of the music is better than others, but some of the music is fabulous and wonderful and thrilling. And you go to a concert by Carlos Vives in Madison Square Garden and that is an experience. Like, you need to do that before you die, you know? <laughs> so so I'm glad that people are discovering what was there and perhaps they hadn't seen before. What do you think it says about where we are in society when these artists are getting such big numbers and the mainstream is acknowledging their presence? It means that people are very open to different sounds, first of all, which is great. And uh, I think we're a far more global universe right now. And, uh, and it's wonderful because it, it also works the other way. I get to hear music from places that I would have never heard music from before or very, you know, choice selections. Now we all have at our fingertips all this great music, but Latin music in particular, it says, first of all, that in the States, there's more Latins now. I mean, it's a big chunk of the population. It's the biggest minority. It's almost 19%. Uh, many of them, even if they are not fluent Spanish speakers, they're open to Spanish. And people who don't speak any Spanish are enjoying the music in Spanish. Um, they're enjoying Latin beats, and they should because it's, it's fun. Reggaeton has been a great equalizer. It's music that's easy to dance to, that's easy to digest, regardless of language. And also, there's a lot of volume right now of music being made, but some of that music is really good, Felix. It is really good. So the fact that so many people are listening to it says something about the music as well. Let's talk about your role as a writer for Billboard, which is the premier publication in the music industry. I've always considered people who are doing what you do at Billboard 
It's like you are helping the broader community, the broader society, get a little insight into who we are by writing about the artists that you cover, about the music that you cover, to the goal of, like you said, making it more inclusive. Mm-hmm. Do, you ever, do you think about that? Like, who are you writing for when you sit down to write? When you, After all your interviews are done and you got all your material and you're writing, like, do you have someone in mind that you're writing to? It's like, I hope someone understands this. Yeah, I think about that all the time. I think I have a great responsibility in the sense that some of the people that read Billboard are decision makers and taste makers, and definitely the industry reads Billboard. So it's very important that the industry know that this music exists and that it drives the number that it drives. I can talk all day long about how good the music is, how the quality of the music, the musicianship, the craft, but at the end of the day, people need to see that there's a viable economic proposition behind it. And so when I am able to say, here's the music and it's fantastic, and here are the numbers that this music generates, and they're also fantastic, then people really sit up and listen. So I do take it as a big responsibility because a lot of people are just not aware or were not aware that the volume was so big. You are listening to Alt Latino. I'm Felix Contreras. And that was Leila Cobo, who is the vice president and Latin music industry lead for Billboard magazine. And she was talking about her new book, Decoding Despacito, an oral history of Latin music. And next, journalist Beto Articles checks in from his home in Southern California to talk about his book, Music Stories from the Cosmic Barrio. Okay, Beto Articles, welcome back to Alt Latino, man. It's always a pleasure to have you here, bro. Thank you for having me. Great to be with you. Like, I'm having a problem even starting the interview because it seems like this is like an ongoing conversation we've been having for years and years and years. And reading your book, it's so effective and getting your voice across. It sounds like yet another conversation that people have been having with you about music over the years. You know, how did you get to this point where, okay, I'm going to put as much stuff down in this book as I can considering all the different types of music I've covered. Where did the genesis for this book come from? I've been thinking about this for about a little over a year. First of all, I wanted to to do a book for a while, but this really sort of, I think, came together because of the pandemic, really. I mean, it, it was in August of last year where I felt like I, I can do this. I'm going to do this. And it's going to be about the stories that I've done over the years and I knew it was going to be overwhelming because, I've, as you know, I've contributed not only to NPR, but I've been working also doing stories for the world almost about as many years as uh, NPR. And in the last three years, I've been also doing stories for the BBC uh, in, you know, in the UK and, of course, our own KPCC in Los Angeles. So, I mean, I, I, you know, it's like all these four animals that I had to gather stories from. Now, I have ob- obviously all of them in my hard drive, you know, kind of been all over the place, but I felt like, all right, I'm, I need to put them together. And of course, I have to ask permission. Um, so I decided to get permission from everybody involved and then start to organize them into kind of narratives, into chapters, into storytelling, you know, because ultimately, as you know, as a writer, you know that. Uh, Behind the music, there's always a story or more. 
And that's been my work from the very beginning. When I started filing stories at a national level in 1993, when Latino USA had been launched, as you as you as you remember, uh, a group of Latino producers and journalists, you know, Maria Martin, Maria Nojosa, out of KUT in Austin. Uh, they were seeking, you know, uh, freelancers, and I was green. <laughs> I just come out. I I was on the verge of graduating from the University of Colorado in Boulder, and I felt okay. I gotta do this. So I started getting some training, and pretty soon I started airing pieces on Latino USA. And in fact, there are a couple of stories that come from Latino USA in that book that I obviously, you know, adapted for the book. So. It goes back that long, but the bulk of this of this book is really the last twelve years since I started working, contributing for NPR and for the world. How would you describe your your beat, your area of expertise, your slice of the Latin music world as you come up with story ideas, right? And you're making a face right now that the radio people can't. That's see. tough. Like... That's a tough one because. If you look at the book, <laughs> I have my taste is so diverse and so wide. I mean, I've I've done interviews with classical composers, but I've also talked to people in you know in the hood or or in a small village, uh, you know, getting stories from them directly. Uh, you know, whether it's in in Argentina or in Colombia or in Mexico or Cuba. Um, I would say my my beat is really kind of everything that has a story. I, I'm interested in the story. Why are people creating this music? Uh, why are composers interested in creating music? You know, there is there's always a story. And in the case of, say, you know, uh, a classical composer like Gabriela Ortiz from Mexico... Um, she was inspired by this, you know, major figure uh, that was sort of the first um, emancipator of slaves in, uh, in, in the Americas, which was Yanga in Mexico, in Veracruz. And she was inspired by this figure that goes back to the late 1500s, you know, and that figure inspired her to create this symphonic work that was performed by the L.A. Phil. So, so I'm interested in the story. <laughs> One thing that strikes me about your work, your work always zeroes in on the, the roots of it all, like where it comes from, the, the folkloric aspect of it. It's like you, it's like you put a um, highly visible value on the folkloric roots of all this music. You know, where does that inspiration come from? Why, why zero in on the folk, the origin, the beginnings of all these things? Mm, that's a, I mean, that's a good question. I, I have to say, I've been interested in folk music from an early age. Uh, I, was, I started listening, really, to the sort of Latin American folk music back in the mid to late 1970s, when I was a teenager. In, uh, in my hometown, in Jalapa, Veracruz, Mexico. I was part of a, of a church choir, of a, a parish run by Jesuits in, in my barrio, in, uh, in Jalapa. And I used to know 
musicians who were part of the choir who played folk instruments, charango, cuatro, quena. They played, you know, it was the heyday of the, of the folk music scene in Latin America. And we would hear all of these sounds, uh, you know, aside from, you know, playing in the church, you would hear these sounds and these, um, this music in, in events and parties, you know, people playing sampoñas uh, and quenas and, and this kind of Andean South American sound. And I was curious all about, about this music. So little by little, I started acquiring vinyl, of course, back in the day. That's what mm -hmm. you listen to, records. <laughs> and um, and I, I, I've always been an avid reader, so I'd, I'd pick up the vinyl and I, I would read, you know. And this is where I actually found out about an instrument like the tiple, that um, these instruments come from South America and they started to be popularized in Mexico by these folk musicians that would want to, you know, say, you know, this is, this is our heritage. This is our rich and diverse musical culture of the Americas. And so I started really at back then to have an interest in the roots of the music. And it hasn't stopped. I mean, it's been like that ever since, you know, when I started doing radio, I always wanted to know, you know, can I see that instrument and you, you, can you play something? Can I record you playing, you know, uh, that instrument that I've, you know, I've never seen that something like that before. So it was always this curiosity as to why people create and play music with these instruments that is not the six string guitar, that is not an electric guitar, that is not a typical drum kit. But, you know, but percussion instruments that are different. So I always was interested in that, in the difference, in the quality of the sound, and the diversity and richness of the, of the music and the instruments. One of the things that happens as a result of that is that your work and a little bit of what we do, and then also what Leila Cobo does, or anybody who is writing about Latin music, but in your case, and with your book, and with so many different pieces that you've done over the years, it's like you end up interpreting uh, or explaining a part of the world or a part of the culture to a wider audience, right? And that's a heavy responsibility that I sometimes feel. It's like I am trying to interpret something that you and I, for example, would take for granted as part of our life or our lifestyle or our interest. But then having to explain that to a wider audience, you know, how do you approach that? What do you do when you're writing that will help people understand the nuances of what you're writing about? I think you said something very important there, Felix. Um, it's a big responsibility. I've never taken it lightly. Uh, I've always, I always felt this very serious job, serious responsibility that I am, in a sense, an agent that is sort of meant to educate and to tell people about the rich diversity of our culture. And I've taken that very seriously because I feel like it's so important for people to know the differences in the music styles. When I did a story, just I'm going to give you a, a quick example. When I did a story about um, Vallenato, um, this story aired about, I don't know, four years ago on NPR, I wanted to make sure that people understood that this is not just any genre, that this genre of music inspired none other than Gabriel Garcia Marquez to write 
100 years of solitude. I mean, that is, I think, a tall order. How do you tell people that? So I, I have to go into the book. You know, I have to go to the, to the source. And, it, you know, it turns out, yeah, that, that he actually quoted, you know, that he actually referenced and mentioned characters that people are familiar with in the countryside in, in Colombia where Vallenato comes from. So I find a way, I think, usually to tell the story that people can understand in their own, you know, in, in their own way. So it's, it's a challenge and sometimes it's really difficult. I, I, I you know, I, I have to be honest. But I think ultimately, for me, the responsibility that I have is more important. That I want to make sure that people know that this is not as simple as, as it sounds. That it's complex. That it has a rich history. And that um, this is something that is not from yesterday, but that's been going on for a long time. And And as a result, what do you hope that the listeners or the readers get from these stories? Well, I, I want them to understand how wide and rich and complex our musical culture is. Uh, I mean, it's unfortunate that, you know, that a lot of people think of Latin music, they think immediately of, you know, what, like the Grammys have, you know, have these categories, you know, Mexican regional, Latin alternative, Latin jazz, you know, the music is much more complex than that. I mean, it, it's it's so much more complex that, you know, I, I tell people, look, a country like Mexico still today has 60 plus indigenous languages that are spoken in the country today alone. Of those 60 something, 65 languages, there are 270 variants or dialects that are spoken today. In other words, Maya is one language, and there are about 10 different types of Maya that are spoken <laughs> in Mexico and Central America. The same goes with music. Colombia has about 100 musical genres. Each genre has three or four different styles. So, for example, Vallenato has four airs or four rhythms, puya, son, eh, merengue, and paseo. <laughs> Those are the four styles or rhythms of vallenato. The genre is just one, but they all sound different. So that's what I try to do, is I try to make it understandable that this is very complex, but I want you to know that this is not unlike the music of the U.S., you know, not unlike the music that uh, Americans are familiar with, you know, from spirituals came gospel, from gospel came blues, from blues, jazz, from jazz, R&B, and from R&B, rock and roll. <laughs> I mean, to simplify a little bit, but, but basically that's sort of the idea that I, I, want them to t I, want, I want them to understand that there is a, you know, an evolution in music, and at the same time, we have the genres that remain traditional still today. I was very fascinated by how you attempt to do that in your book, by the way you divided up the book, the chapters, things like uh, instruments, community building, place and nation, uh, adversity. 
Talk a little bit about your idea behind the chapters. I felt like I wanted to help the reader see beyond the idea of music as just a form of expression, as, as, as what an artist does to express themselves. I wanted to help them understand that behind the music there are these stories. And so when you look at a chapter, um, for example, like in the immigration chapter, we have you know, several uh, figures uh, of music, not just from Latin America, but also from other parts of the world, that address the issue, the, the concept or the idea of immigration in different ways. So we have, you know, the case of La Santa Cecilia, a band that is composed of children of immigrants. That's an immigration story right there for me, you know, and they say it out loud. They, they tell me in the story that that's who they are. And that's when you hear their sound, their sound is this confluence of being American and also being immigrants. Um, the story of um, Arturo O'Farrell and the uh, Fandango at the Wall, it's a story of immigration. It's a story about a Fandango fronterizo that takes place every year at the border between TJ and San Diego. And Arturo Farrell read a story in the New York Times and he decided that he wanted to meet the founder of this event that takes place every year in May. And he went to the border and spent time. Eventually, he ended up going to Veracruz to meet a lot of the musicians that make this music called Son Jarocho. But it's a story about this gathering of musicians every year at the border. It's about immigration. It's about this wall that's divided the two countries for so long. And yet, music has helped to bring us together. Um and, and so on. I mean, and, and I can go on, you know, producers when I, you know, there are people that I consider producers. Joe Castro, for example, who was a Mexican-American pianist who people really didn't know who he was. He, he sort of had his heyday all the way up to the mid-60s, and then he kind of disappeared into obscurity in Las Vegas. He ended up playing at some, you know, at some club. He was such a major figure in jazz. I mean, he recorded some of the first long jam sessions anywhere where he had all of these amazing cats here in a, in a Beverly Hills studio that was built by his very, very wealthy wife, Doris Duke, no less. <laughs> you know, but this guy invited everybody who was anybody of the jazz musicians that, that he had not friendship in L.A. and also in the East Coast. Um, and so he's like a producer type to me. He's not, you know, he didn't say, okay, we're going to produce this record, come over, you know, I want you to do this. No, he invited them into the studio and they recorded and they, they were basically told, do what you like to do best. And he roll tape. That's what a producer does too, you see. At the same time, you could have... A character like Gustavo Santaolalla, everybody knows he's like, you know, one of the major figures of Latin rock, produced some of the major bands, Café Tacuba, you know, and so on. Um, so I felt like I wanted to also tell people that um, it's more than just the usual type of people of, of, of music and musicians that you're going to read about here. It's not the, the usual way in which you're going to find instruments being described <laughs> like the story of you know of this uh, 
uh, ethnomusicologist, professor in Mexico City, Guillermo Contreras, who has amassed a collection of some five to 6,000 pieces, instruments from all over Latin America, mostly Mexico. And I went to his home and I was just floored. I mean, you, can, you couldn't even walk in there because, you know, there are instruments on every spot, on every piece of, of you know, the room. And I was overwhelmed just to see the, how many instruments he had. And I said, you know, what are you going to do? He says, well, you know, I've been, I've been waiting. I've been hoping to build an in, a museum so, you know, I could put these instruments, you know, in a, in a place where they belong. And, and he would tell me about the instruments and he would play all these instruments. And I was just, he says, you know, this is a flute that used to be played by the Aztecs in, you know, in the 1500s. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> to wind this up, man, talk a little bit about the title. Okay. What is, tell us the title and then tell us what is the Cosmic Barrio. The book is called Music Stories from the Cosmic Barrio. For me, the Cosmic Barrio is, is really this sort of mythical place where one can go and get together and have a great time, listen to good music, have a convivencia, a good hangout with family and friends, and enjoy life. It's sort of this mythical space that initially uh, sort of was the creation of a friend of mine. Uh, you may know him, uh, writer Ruben Martinez, gave me this idea because I was I was about to create a new program on KPFK here, Pacific Radio in Los Angeles, and, and I said to him, hey, man, I need the name of a show. I already created a program called The Global Village, but I need something else for a weekend, you know, a, a program that would have a cool name. A couple of days later, he called me and says, I got a name for you. And it's sort of right out of this concept that I heard uh, in a song by Los Lobos. I think it was it might have been their album, uh, Good Morning Aztlan or something like that. It gave him that idea that there is this cosmic barrio in Los Angeles where people, you know, eat good food, get together, play music, and have a great time. And I, I love the name. I said, that's it. I'm creating that program. So that program was on the air on KPFK for a number of years, and then, you know, it's been gone. But I, I hung on to that idea. I kept that idea, and I created a podcast of the same name. So then when I decided to to put together the book, you know, I realized that I've traveled in so many parts of the world, Madrid, you know, Buenos Aires, uh, Bogota, Cali, I mean, all of these places, and everywhere I go, I end up, you know, finding myself in a space that could arguably called, be called the Cosmic Barrio, because I felt like it's, there are all, there are all of these Cosmic Barrios everywhere, there's, there's, there's all of these places where people get together, have a great time, and it's a positive vibe. So I wanted to also, you know, in the, in the midst of all of this, then people have started telling me, you know, Beto, in, in the U.S., barrio is kind of negative. People think of the barrio as some sort of, you know, you know, careful to go to the barrio, that kind of thing. And I said, no, I never thought of it that way. You know, coming from Mexico... You, you don't think of the barrio as a, as a bad place. You think of, hey, man, vamos al barrio. You know, let's go hang out in the neighborhood. That's how I've al always thought of it. So I said, you know, well, it's a great thing because I wanted to completely change that idea then. I mean, that it really, to me, the Cosmic Barrio is a great place to hang out, have a good time, listen to good music, and eat some good food. 
Maybe a couple of uh, copas along the way. ¿Por qué no? Un mezcalito. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man. Beto Arcos, thank you so much for coming back to Alt Latino, talking to us about your book. So glad that you come to share it with us, bro. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Felix. The Latin music journalism world is indeed small, and our connections are more of a networking nature rather than competition. So again, my thanks to my colleagues and longtime pals Leila Cobo and Beto Arcos for sharing time to talk about their work and their new books. And you know, between their two books, we get a thorough and informed overview of Latin music of all forms from two expert storytellers that continue the tradition of lessons passed on from master to student. You can hear the music we referenced in the show this week on our website at npr.org altlatino. You can also find links to both Beto and Leila there as well. And don't forget our weekly new music playlist on Spotify and Apple. Just look for Alt Latino. And by the way, the background music you heard this week was performed by David Shulman and the Quiet Life Motel. Thank you very much, David. You have been listening to Alt Latino from NPR Music. I'm Felix Contreras. Thanks so much for listening. Please be careful out there. Mask up, keep your distance, and get your shots if you can. <laughs> <laughs>